Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Duncan. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Okay, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You know, same neighborhood. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host. Joined as ever with my co-host, Andrew. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, sir. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Good. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. <laughs> so today we've got one that you're not going to want to miss. We are doing our 80s apocalypse double feature. But mm. before we dive into Miracle Mile and Night of the Comet, I just want to mention that we are available on every major podcast platform. We are also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles about the most trending topics on the web at any given moment and then reads them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the internet, the entire web becomes listenable. Browse some articles from topics that you choose and start playing. Stop scrolling, start listening. You can follow any topic as specific as you would like from sports, science, to Bitcoin, and the Kardashians, and it will find the latest articles, then read them to you. They have podcasts as well from over 50 different countries. Our podcast, Cold Film Companion, is there too. Download and use Newsly for free now from www.newsly.me or from the link in the description. And please use the promo code C-O-L-T-F-1-L-M, Cult Film. Drop the I, pop in a one, and get a month free premium subscription. We are also a featured podcast at www.blindknowledge.com, which is a DYI creator collective that have video casts and podcasts from around the world from amazing creators where the creators come first and they are all about giving you quality content. So please check us out at Blind Knowledge and check out the rest of the creators there as well. Now it is time for your feature presentations. We have a double header here of two 80s apocalyptic movies Miracle Mile and Night of the Comet, which are two very different takes on the apocalypse. And we're doing something a little bit different here. Since we're covering two movies, we're going to be focusing less on the specifics of the movies and more about why maybe the 80s were so preoccupied with the apocalypse and also just about the movies in general and how they actually have a lot of similarities, although... They differ wildly in terms of tone and content. So, Andrew. Yes. Night of the Comet. Yeah. Talk about it. Because well. you introduced me, reintroduced me to this movie. But um, this, was a, this was a big influence on you. And we're going to talk about how big of an influence <laughs> um, in terms of wanting to write your own movie. Right, right. Uh, let's see. Some, somewhere... In the years past, there was a seed in my mind about making an apocalypse movie uh, set in the 80s. 
uh, actually a movie, <laughs> an apocalyptic movie musical set in the 80s. And I got a kick out of the idea that everything that came after the 80s simply didn't happen, that it was all over then. Uh, that that kind of stemmed from the idea that I had, which was the 80s were kind of the last time we saw some real pop culture. And this is my opinion, in my opinion only. And this is no offense to, uh, you know, the later generations that came after me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did have someone who got really upset. He was like, oh, so basically he was, he was younger than I was. He was like, oh, so basically, you know, I didn't exist. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah. I mean, if you want to attach that personally, I mean, if you want to get that personal about it. But can we honestly say at one point or another, some of us have just wished the 90s were erased? Well, I don't even wish that so much. It's not that the 90s were so bad for me personally, but that, you know... I kind of attribute the end of pop culture as we knew it in the 80s coming to an end in the 90s with the on, onset of grunge and Nirvana and Kurt Cobain. They kind of really wiped the slate clean with all of that and uh, flannel and jeans were back in. And I actually lived in Seattle for a while during that time, so I was a part of all of that and I did trash all of the, uh, you know, all of my uh, aesthetic from the 80s. We, you know, that's kind of typical. After in the 80s, the 70s were not cool. In the 90s, the 80s were, you know, kind of cool in a retro kind of way. But uh, it just, you know, in, and Britney Spears did come along later and turn pop culture back into what it was, although it really wasn't. It was never the same. In the 80s, we had, especially with the bands, um, so much diversity going on. You know, we, yeah, the mainstream had Madonna and Huey Lewis in the news, but the alternative scene had The Smiths, The Cure. Um, you know, I could go on and on. U2 was kind of alternative before Depeche they became Mode. Named Depeche Mode. Thank you. Even even Duran Duran had a very, uh, a very, a very alternative aesthetic, even though they were mainstream. So, so I liked the idea. Um, a lot. And someone, I don't remember how I landed on Night of the Comet. I think someone recommended it to me. I was doing research. I was trying to find movies from the 80s that dealt with this. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about Miracle Mile until, until you brought it up just recently with me. But Night of the Comet, I did watch and I got a huge kick out of it. I liked the, the way it uh, walked between comedy and outright horror, you know. And it could easily go in one direction or the other, but it it balanced it back and forth and back and forth. I got a big kick out of that, and I wrote a lot of... When I started writing the script for my project, um, I included elements like that in it. Yeah, so Night of the Comet, we have everyone looking forward to this, this big return of a comet, and people are talking about, oh, this is like the return of Haley's Comet, and there's comet-watching parties. and mm -hmm. But it, we also get a quick... I, and I didn't notice this the first time that I watched it, um, but we actually get a quick scene where we see scientists preparing something under in an underground lair where they had this kind of like it's very um, it's lit very ominously and yep. it looks like they're kind of preparing for the worst, and the worst does happen because the comet uh, essentially wipes everybody out that isn't wasn't in a place that was either secure. Well, it turns out the government facility wasn't secure. Right. They, um, because their vents were on. But it's steel. It's steel that actually protects you from the comet within the context of this movie. Right. And so the characters that we lead? follow. Huh? Is it lead? 
I think it's it's lead. steel. Is it? It's steel because they're having a conversation about Superman. He he can see through steel, but he can't see through lead. But it is later determined that um, the con- the confinements that they were in during the comet's uh, landing or doing whatever it did to Earth uh, were made of steel. Right. That protected so we them. have um, Regina Belmont and her sister Samantha, mm-hmm. uh, portrayed by Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney, respectively, both of which had come off of soap operas. That's right. They were... Um, in competing, I guess, soap operas, Days of Our Lives and One Life to Live. What at the same time on yeah. prime time? Oh, that's that's interesting. Okay. So okay, um, and you were saying, and I was saying that they don't look like sisters, and you were saying the younger looks older than the older. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't look like sisters. They but, do not look yeah. like sisters, which is something that um, Tom Eberhardt brought up on the commentary for this. He's the writer director of Night of the Comet. Mm-hmm. Um, he had specifically mentioned that he wanted. <laughs> he talks a lot about, which is very interesting going into the backstory of this. The producers of this kind of helped cast the movie. And the producers of this movie, again, we're not going to get too much into specifics because we're covering two movies here. But the important things to note are the producers of Night of the Comet had just come off the success of Valley Girl. Oh, that explains a lot. Yes, and this was kind of shoved into their laps. They didn't really want to revisit Valley Girl. It seems like, well, we've already done the Valley Girl thing. Like, even Valley Girl's at the end of the world, which I guess is kind of the pitch for Night of the Comet. Yeah, it's like um, Valley Valley Girl meets uh, Omega Man. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so, going back to the the two leads that were cast, um, he, they were like, well, the casting director, he didn't really have much of a say in terms of all the casting, but the casting director kind of said, I mean, well, th- these are the two best ones here. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that were, um, Heather Langenkamp, who would later go on, this came, Night of the Comet came out in 1984. Uh, 1984 was the also the year that the first Nightmare on Elm Street was released, and she ended up being the lead in that, which kind of launched her career, which petered out. But um, but she auditioned for Night of the Comet, right? She did. Yeah. Um, and she read. She read with one of the stars. She actually ended up reading with Catherine Mary Stewart, who is the older sister, but looks younger than the younger sister. In my personal According opinion, to you, yeah. According to me. Yeah. I could have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, no. <laughs> that, could, that could actually be the case in terms of their act, their ages, their real ages. I tried ages. to look them up, um, and I don't want to stereotype women, but one of the actresses, and I'm not going to say which one, for respect out of her, I can't seem to find her age anyway. Even on IMDb, you can't yeah. find her birth date? I can find, uh, no. <laughs> I can find the years active, which is great, but I cannot find an exact birth date. Um, but watching the re- um, the behind-the-scenes documentary, again, I'm not going to single out one. One has aged much better than the other. <laughs> they uh, both look good to me. Anyway, okay. let's move on. Uh, now, yeah, I'm getting hung up on weird, weird stuff. Please ignore me. So, Night of the Comet. Um, yeah, Tom Eberhardt, who previously was working at PBS. That was like his only experience. And he kind of wrote Night of the Comet. Um, 
and he 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 saw the success of Valley Girl, and he, he was like, okay, well, what about Valley Girls at the end of the world? And he did some interviews with actual teenage girls, and he kind of got some some insight from them. And one of the things that all, all the teenage girls, again, I don't want to stereotype, but their biggest concern seemed to be dating. <laughs> They're like, well, who are we going to Which is, yeah. uh, it is a valid concern. Um and that's very much a theme in Night of the Comet. Very it, much. The two sisters are going after ostensibly the last man on earth. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Um, even the last eligible bachelor. Basically. Yeah, we'll say that. Yeah. So we have one sister that um, actually her boyfriend or uh, part time lover, um, a la Billy Joel, um, is the <laughs> film projection. Projection as she works. That's not a part time lover. That's Stevie Wonder, isn't it? Is it? I think so. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've already gone completely off the rails, which is fine because it's like we're doing eighties apocalypse yeah. movies. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So it's okay to go off the rails. Absolutely. I mean, these, <laughs> mo- these, these movies, movies do. both yeah. of these movies go Everybody completely does. off the rails. One mo- one makes a huge one eighty, um, and that's Miracle Mile. Uh, Night of the Comet is kind of full of one eighties because this movie has a lot in it. So the comet wipes out everyone that isn't in a protective environment. And the ones that it, and they're basically reduced to literal dust, which mm-hmm. leads to some of the 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 psych eggs early on. We just got piles of clothes in the streets and in the, and then in the empty cars. And and the first the first time, forgive me if I I have a ton of notes for this podcast Please. for this episode, so I'm going to be flipping pages a lot. Uh, but. Uh, I'm going to call, in Night of the Comet, I'm going to call them by their character names. Okay. So at one point, too, uh, Regina, when she first discovers these piles of dust with the clothes, she's 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 looking at an article of clothing with interest, kind of like, oh, I like that. Kind yeah. of, and it's going over her head that, you know, this belongs she, to yeah, a, she has no a idea. person that's I'll... now a pile of dust. And then, <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's kind of the, that's the humor that comes out of this movie all through the movie. Right. So, we yeah, it's kind of... Valley Girls at the End of the World, and, um, yeah, so she, she finds these piles of dust, but then we come up to one of the things that happens if you're not wiped out by this comet is apparently you turn into a zombie. Right. Which, interestingly enough, was never kind of part of the original plot of this movie. Um, Eberhardt comments that when he was writing the script, he, he was like, well, I came to like page 30 and then I realized that there was like no antagonist. There's nothing to really create tension in this world. So, zombies. Why not? Why not? <laughs> and for those of you that want to, I get, apparently there's a lot of debate whether or not this is a zombie movie. He says it's not a zombie movie. So we'll go with what Eberhardt says because it's his movie. I tend to not think of it pretty much as a zombie You movie. don't see them very often. No. And they're not really hyper-aware of zombies on their tail or looming in the distance somewhere. No. So you see them once in a while. And they're easy to fight, pretty much. I mean, our our two teenage protagonists, our great female protagonists, are great at 
um, kicking ass. They're like kickboxers. Right. I don't know how. Well, their father, I guess, their father took them to, to, to yeah. shooting ranges and probably gave them martial arts classes. And Regina mentions when she comes across the first zombie that she's a girl that's been trained to take care of herself. Ah. And she kicks, yeah, she kicks this zombie's ass. She does. And for right those away. of you that want to go into the first time you see quick zombies or fast zombies, uh, these zombies are not slow. They're not. Particularly they, that they, kid particularly the kid that's Right. But they move pretty much at a regular human's speed. Yeah, they're not yeah. superhuman like twenty eight days later or right. anything but like that. But uh, people always seem to they a lot of people get hung up on the slow zombies versus fast zombies. Well that's argument. always well that's always saw for a long time until twenty eight days later. Right. And so you always you know, you always thought in the back of your head, well, I could always outrun a zombie. I could always, you know, punch a zombie in the face, you know, without it, you know, having a quick reaction. Right. And, and then that was turned on its, you know, on its head with Danny Boyle's uh, zombie movie. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, Eberhardt said it's not a zombie movie. And I have to say that, I mean, the biggest villains in this movie are just regular people. Yeah, they are. They're, they're scientists. They're the establishment, actually. Well, first, before the establishment, well, first we find out the nefarious ways of the establishment that's going slowly. I mean, this movie is is much more intelligent than I had initially given it yeah, credit it ha- for. It has layers and different dimensions that it taps into at different times. Right. Uh-huh. I mean, we've got... We get subtle hints that there's something wrong with the survivors. Well, the government survivors. Um, I mean, the woman's writing. She's she's actually writing like side effects of exposure, and she writes memory loss, but she misspells memory. So that's some heavy memory loss, especially for an educated scientist. Right, and then towards the end, they've gone completely off the rails mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, in terms of what they're doing to the human survivors. They're just basically sucking the blood dry out of them a la a vampire to come up with a serum. And they've made them brain dead. So yes. So they're, they're basically in a coma. Yeah. It's, they're just being kept alive like vegetables. You and know, it's and kind of like... blood is being siphoned. It's almost kind of on the nose the way that... I mean, because they're, they're two nurses talking about it and they're basically, well... What can they do now that they're brain dead? The other nurse is like nothing but produce blood, yeah. which is apparently the their the uh, our fearless government who has come up with this brain trust, which has a very creepy Westworld esque logo that we see That's on right. their trucks and on the helicopter. They're you know, they're in this underground base. Um, uh, apparently. The la- they think that the 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 last survivors, but um, our our Valley Girls again. This movie we're all over the place talking about this movie because this movie's all over the place. We got Valley Girls breaking into a radio station, one of them playing DJ, and one of them re- getting a call on the hits line, which turns out is the uh, the government. And then we get, and they and they yeah, <laughs> and then we get a Mexican truck driver. Yep, yep, yep. Uh. Okay, where where to go, where to go from here? Right. Uh, so let's see. All right. So let's let's backtrack a little bit. Um, the woman who has the memory memory loss, by the way, is Mary Warnov. I will talk about her more in a little bit, but she is worth mentioning, and once again, I'll explain why. Okay. Now the idea. Now the idea of. Um, I love 
I think it's a stroke of genius. I have here written in my notes, half of the movie set in a radio station equals genius. Because we get a very uh, palpable soundtrack, basically, from this con concept, from this conceit. Right. The, you know, because the, in the radio station, there's a reel-to-reel -reel that's constantly playing DJ announcements as well as music forever and ever and ever. Uh, so we're constantly hearing music. We're constantly hearing music from the 80s in the radio station for all of those scenes, basically. Yes. You know, almost all of those scenes. Almost all of those scenes. Now, it's interesting because I did listen to the soundtrack of both movies, uh, and the one for Night of the Comet was not uh, a standout for me. I wasn't as uh, delighted with it as I thought I would be. What's more, what's more enjoyable is the soundtrack as you're watching the movie. I want to I say that there are about like 20 songs in the movie. I mean, I could be exaggerating, but it's just back-to-back -back 80s songs uh, throughout the whole flick. But noteworthy enough, it's not really 80 songs that I recognize with one exception, which I well, did, I mean, girls just want to have fun, which isn't the Cindy Lauper version. No, right. Um, it's yeah, a, so it's another put, singer. Yeah, we got that song in the uh, the the mall montage. But other Surprise. than that, I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Valley Girl. Of yeah. course, we got to have a mall scene. Yeah. Um, which we should we should mention also the other antagonist of this movie briefly is a gang of uh, stock boys turned who are on their way to becoming zombies. Yes. Yeah, they're we, starting to transition, so they really don't give two fucks about what they're no. doing. Mm -hmm. um, so this whole sense of anarchy uh, is prevalent in Night of the Comet, as it is with a lot of apocalyptic movies. I think of the Australian one that I mentioned to you from 2016 or 2013. I wish I could remember the name of it. Oh, boy. Because that's a good one. Yes. Yeah. We, we watched the trailer for that. Something Waves? Mm. No, we might want to plug that in at some point, edit it in. Uh, so, so yeah, just make a make a note. Okay. Uh, but that's that's an excellent one. I should I should remember it. Uh, but that's also a movie where everybody is behaving completely primally, uh, you know, as animals basically, uh, with complete anarchy in their minds. And I say anarchy in the worst sense. Um, I actually think anarchy can be a good thing but in this case it's not these final hours these final hours from a good 2013 2013 a really good australian apocalyptic movie it's very very gritty uh and intense it's basically in real time you know right before it all hits so uh so you know with with that as in comparison to night of the comet two very very different flicks but in night of the comet you still have a little of that anarchy going on yes mm -hmm. and um and it's dangerous and violent right and yeah the, so the soundtrack we got a lot of 80s music but we don't get any of those like one hit 80s wonders like no, I was but begging, a lot of them are good songs yeah you I know? could have gone for some kajagugu or uh, <laughs> some johnny hates jazz or some uh, Mexican radio. I mean, are these songs all originals that are in the I, movie? We, I for think the most so, part, because I was watching, I didn't recognize yeah. any of the songs. So I mean, and that like, says a lot right there. You know, it doesn't have to be. You know, no, the, I mean, the we, top forty. We have to mention that this movie had a budget of seven hundred thousand dollars. That's unbelievable. And they did both movies actually, but that and Miracle Mile had very limited budgets that they had to work with and work around. Compared to seven hundred thousand dollars, Miracle Mile had a lot more to play with. 
Um, How much did Miracle Mile have? Three point seven million. So they had a mi- three million plus the budget of Night of the Comet. It's weird. You think it should be the other way around. Yes. You know, uh, but you see, you see the mo- you do see the money in Miracle Mile because it's all leading up to the apocalypse, whereas Night of the Living Comet is all post-apocalypse. Right. Yeah. Um, and pretty soon we're going to start segueing into because there's a lot of similarities here between these two movies, kind of more so behind the scenes technical stuff, even though I said we're not going to talk too much about that um, in very broad strokes. Uh, but Night of the Comet, it's it, it tonally is kind of. I mean, you get a lot of humor here, and this was... I was surprised to find out that this movie's only rated PG-13. I thought this movie was rated R. It should be. I mean, in my opinion, it should be. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure back... I don't know, for whatever reason. Like, you know, it doesn't have anything too explicit that would garner an R rating. No, but there's some... There are moments, definitely. There's some questionable... like. The younger sister, she basically strips down to her bra and panties. It's only a dream, but she still does. And it. then she gets killed. Yeah, I mean, it's it is. It's well, she, it's, it's disturbing. Still, she thinks that she she turns out she's not. Dead. Uh, well, I know. No, it's a dream <laughs> sequence. Shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. But then the older sister is told at one point that her younger sister is dead. Right, but that's for different reasons. That's when right. the scientists come in and are supposed to give her a lethal injection and. And Mary Warnoff's character, whose name is Audrey, uh, does not. Right. She 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 actually has compassion. She's she's the only one of the scientists that see what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. It but it, which was odd to me because at first she seemed like the most cold mm-hmm. towards this whole thing. She's very hesitant about mm-hmm. even going out to get survivors. She thinks that they should all focus their attention on surviving themselves. Right. Sure. Yeah, she's got a very clinical she she plays it well. She's got she a does. very clinical uh mentality and, and modus operandus with her and uh, she is very cold. So it is it's all the more of kind of a revelation when she does show sympathy for these for these survivors that they're trying that they're, you know, that they're preying upon. And, and going back to the PG-13 rating, this is uh, just a note, bit of trivia. This is one of the first mainstream movies to ever have the PG-13. Oh, really? Uh, Red that... Dawn was the very first Sure, movie. okay, okay. Um, and once again, it's in 1984. I keep bringing that up because we've done movies in 1984. 1984 was, a, was quite the year. Things turned into neon in the 80s and then. But, I mean, also there's the whole Orwellian take on it, you know, sure. which is... Like, uh, you know, nineteen ni- the book 1984, the film was made in 19, and it's f- in 1984. And also, uh, you said that your version of Miracle Mile, the DVD, actually has 1984 as a companion piece to it. Yes. What, who released that? It's MGM. Not, so it's an MGM release, and they threw but- 1984 on with Miracle Mile. Which is weird. And then we're doing as a double feature Night of the Comet, which was released in 1984. So there's some synchronicity going on here. Yeah, there's a lot. Where did the video for synchronicity come from? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I uh, want to say 1984. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, uh, yeah, but 1984, um, this movie, I mean, it's, it's very... I mean, the fact that the producers from Valley Girl were involved in this movie doesn't you know I, I think they took a lot of the crew from valley girl to help make night of the comet and this was this was tom 
Eberhardt's uh, directorial debut. He had written... It was his di- directorial debut? He yes. hadn't directed anything? No. He okay. previously had worked... For, like I said, it, it had only worked for PBS. That was the only kind of showbiz t- ties that he had. No, 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 no. He wrote Soul Survivor, which was a few years earlier. Or was it the year before? Or no, it was the same year, wasn't it? I think so. Didn't Soul Survivor come out? Yeah, so he wrote Soul Survivor, which is a good flick uh, that we should cover at some point that I told you about, uh, about a woman who is the only survivor in a plane crash, and she experiences a phenomenon that apparently happens where uh, people, I don't know, see dead people? That's what happens to her in the movie, at least. Right. So it's kind of Sixth Sense meets Final Destination kind yeah, of thing going right, on. Right, 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 um, right. In fact, yeah, yes. Yeah, I'm it, just going by what Everhart says on the commentary, so maybe he's lying to me. I want to say he directed Soul Survivor as well, but maybe not. I think but he in, did. Yeah. I think I remember in the research that he had written and well, directed that. Well, then maybe he did that after Night of the Comet and they both got released the same year. Sure. Not quite we, sure. We could have a, a yeah. true romance kind of thing yeah. going on here with, you know, you never know. Which came post. first. Right. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. The Comet or The Survivor, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so. I like that. And, and then. But both of the both him Eberhardt and DeJarnett, who wrote and directed Miracle Mile, so both of them like the I mean the script for Miracle Mile was around for a lot longer than the script of Night of the Comet. Night of the Comet got picked up much sooner, but he had a meeting at Orion uh, Pictures, which was a huge thing at the time. But they said that the, the budget for this was going to be far too expensive, um, and he eventually came around to like a, a smaller production company, where the producers for Valley Girl were kind of. Uh, he said that um, he kind of defaulted to them in a lot of in a lot of ways because he wasn't as experienced with them. Um, but he knew that at the whole time that he's making a drive-in movie, that he was kind of making a, a fun sure. kind of movie. Popcorn flick. Right. And the movie is a lot of fun. I mean, I again, I am kind of surprised that it's only PG-13 because there, there is some very dark elements. Yes. It's, I mean, the, the girls, what turns into, what ha- starts out as a fun mall montage of them trying on different outfits... It, it, it turns into this huge shootout. Mm-hmm. And then they're tied up and they're very threatened by these this gang. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, it get, there are very dark moments in it. Uh, I agree. I agree. There's even um, a hunger, hunger Games aspect when she's rescuing the children from the scientist's facility towards the end, you know, that's going on here. Um, and there's... there, uh, I mean... I won't I won't go into it but there are certain elements of why I didn't do Highway to Hell with you in okay. in, in Night of the Comet. So so it it's there. I mean this is and I need to I need to mention that this is prevalent especially uh in movies in the 80s uh a lot of them especially um with younger casts. So I it's something that I notice and something that I have to deal with um with that knowledge. But I want to piggyback on that in a lighter sense I think by saying that I was I was a teenager in the 80s, and not only was I a teenager in the 80s, I um, would visit uh, Southern California a lot in the 80s. I was born in Ventura, so I was I was going back and forth visiting family a lot in the 80s. Both of these movies take place in Los Angeles in the 1980s, with uh, well not with teenagers. Miracle Mile, they're actually grown-ups, uh, but they it's they're still 
there's still kind of a little bit of a teenage vibe in uh, Miracle Mile. But it was very uh, specific to that time, being that age at that time. Uh, I remember that very clearly, and it defined my world very much being a teenager in the 80s. It was like all of culture was catering to me and my friends, mm -hmm. you know? So it was a good time, you know? If you, if you didn't know a lot of the other stuff going on in the 80s. I mean, there was so much going on in the 80s that was glossed over through uh, Reaganism. Right, you know? yeah. 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 Um, so Eberhardt, uh, you know, a lot of companies, they just wanted to buy the script and they didn't want him to direct, and he was kind of insistent on, I want to direct this, so... Um, and he had just filmed Cherry 2000, or, yeah, he had just come no, that's off... that's the That's the... <laughs> this is going to happen a lot. Yes, Go ahead. Is. Yeah. Go um, ahead. Yeah, so... So, so, so he said, I want to... Night of the Comet, uh -huh. yeah. I want to direct this? Yeah, but according to his commentary, this was his first movie, so I'm thinking that they probably were... They were Soul Survivor kind of um, came after this or was filmed very If closely. he directed it. Yeah. Um, so don't go by these facts. We're not we're not sure if we're 100% sure on that. Um, but it, this goes into what happened with Steve DeJarnett. Uh, Miracle Mile was a script that had been floating around Hollywood for close to 10 years. And it was one of those movies that kind of got bounced around a lot. And if you've seen Miracle Mile, I hope you've seen both of these if you're listening, but you know that Miracle Mile, um, I mean, it's arguable, it's arguable which one of these has the more downer endings. I tend to think Miracle Mile does because... Um, yes, it does. It does. I mean, um, I, I did crack the joke at the end of Night of the Living Comet, Night, Night of the Living Comet, Night of the Comet that... Uh, that it seemed more bleak to me than the end of, of Miracle Mile, but Night of the Comet is much more uh, fun. Yeah, at the end, it, it, at, it at is the fun. end we've yeah. we've got the um, the RKM references wrapped up. Uh huh. Apparently, the RKM. We'll get back to Miracle Mile in a second, but the RKM. So Regina is playing this video game, and she is hell bent, and the top ten of this video game is going to be all her. An RKM pops up randomly, and apparently he had no intention of resolving this, uh, but crew members and like producers kept asking him who RKM is, and he goes, it doesn't matter. The whole scene is about her, and we're trying to show that she's aggressive and competitive and all this kind of stuff. But then he finally resolves it at the end. We find out RKM is this... Uh, valley guy i would yeah. say <laughs> yeah who shows up out of nowhere and to the complete delight of the younger sister now there's someone in the world <laughs> for her <laughs> for her she's got a, she's got her boyfriend now by default and yeah. as they're as they're pulling away and uh and her older sister and uh, hector the the mexican who is now hooked up with the older sister and the two children that have been rescued their their own little 
family unit now. Yes. They say she, they say to the younger sister, well, make sure, you know, to the valley guy taking her away, yeah. make sure you have her back by midnight. Yes. Ha, ha, ha. And as he's pulling away, you see his license plate, and it's... RKM. That's right. So we That's got right. It, that was finally yeah. resolved, but, um, yeah. Now, when she's playing that video game, you see her from the beginning, I think. The opening sequence is her playing the video game, and she is. She's just, like, hell-bent on winning this game over and over again, and you can see... Um, the warrior, I guess, within her yes. coming out. Uh, she does a good job of letting it show. She's just fixated. And her manager is, she's an usher at a, at a movie house, you know, yeah. and uh, at a movie cinema. And she's playing the video game while she's on the clock. So her boss is like, will you please get to work? Can you like go down the aisles? And, uh, and she's like, in a minute, in a minute, in a minute, I got to win this game. Yeah. <laughs> so she, oh, it, it should be noted that, I mean, these girls were trained. Their father, who is uh, apparently away on some Green Beret mission, um, <laughs> is left with the, and they're left with their stepmother, who they don't even Who's call mom. They just call Denise. Yeah. Um, the Doris. Or is it Doris? It's Doris. Is it Dor- okay. yeah, Doris? Yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's Doris. Doris beats the shit out of the younger sister. <laughs> Who punches her in the face. Right, which is another reason why it was like PG-13. The stepmom just straight up cold cocked this girl right in the face. Like, the slapping is one thing. That's daytime soap opera. I'm sure that actress is slapping someone at least once a week in a soap opera. But, I mean, she gets punched and flips over the couch. Um, where was I going? I don't know. Excuse me, I have listeners. No I'm smoking so, a cigarette. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like blowing smoke into the microphone. Go yeah, ahead. The microphone can take it. The microphone's fine. So their father has a military background. They they talk about how that's why they kind of have the self-defense training and they have got some weapons training. Uh, one of the funnier scenes in this movie, one of the lighter scenes, is they're shooting up this car. Um, in downtown LA, shooting up this car in downtown LA. I got some interesting notes about their shooting in LA kind of thing, but uh, yeah, they're shooting up this car. I forget the kind of gun that they're using, but it, it actually kept locking up um, during production while they were filming the scene. The the gun was kept locking, blocking up or locking up, and it it, it wouldn't fire. And the uh, the director said, if that happens again, just go with it. Just just make improvise improvise and one of the my favorite line of the movie is daddy would have gotten this Uzi <laughs> and is, that's because they were supposed to have Uzis for that yes, scene and they yes, couldn't they get were. their mitts on Uzis for that no. scene so instead they had these faulty little uh, machine guns yeah so yeah this movie was made for $700,000 and that's it, unbelievable it, even for them the box office far exceeded the budget um, they, they it did I mean Easily recouped its money, and did fairly well at the box office. Did fairly well on cable and in video yep. stores and all that. On the flip side, we have Miracle Mile, which had a budget of three point seven million and only grossed one point one million. Yeah, and, big flop. And we've got another um, writer director who who was insistent on directing his own movies. Yep. Um, who had previously done a movie called Cherry 2000, which is another... This guy must be, like, hung up on post-apocalyptic or Armageddon kind of things. Because Cherry 2000... Although he did not... I just noticed he did not write Cherry 2000. He only directed it. He just directed it. So, uh, which is a post-apocalyptic movie, which neither of us have seen, but it seems to have something to do with some sort of sex robot. So if that's your deal, check out 
Cherry 2000. It's got Melanie Griffith. Until Mel- yeah, until Mel- <laughs> Melanie Griffith comes along, and then it looks like a whole other movie. But if you want a better 80s Melanie Griffith movie, watch Body Double or Something Wild. Okay. That's Let's, my shameless plug. Okay. We can talk about Miracle Mile a little bit more because we're, we're talking a lot about uh, Night of the Comet. Right. Now, uh, now the Dejarna, uh also... I realized wrote uh, this the teleplay for a uh, uh, was it Roald Roald Dahl Roald Dahl Roald Dahl a short story called Man from the South and he did it for Alfred Hitchcock presents the eighties version really yeah okay. and I saw that when it first aired uh, so I I was you know subconsciously familiar with his work I guess mm-hmm. based Roald on that. Dahl and Hitchcock I like it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so this and mo- both of the and. Uh, Man from the South actually had Melanie Griffith in it as well. So something's up with him and her. I don't mm. know. Yeah. yeah. She knows how to get a role. Yeah. <laughs> not, not saying anything. So, yes, this script uh, was on the Hollywood blacklist. And this is not the bad Hollywood blacklist. Like, uh, you get blacklisted or blackballed like a director or an actor that Hollywood no longer wants to have any um, anything to do with. The uh, this, this the screenplay blacklist is a list of ten movies of of unproduced scripts. So it's not movies; it's ten unproduced scripts, like the best of the year. And I think it was nineteen eighty three or eighty four that this movie was on that list. And again, this sat around for ten years because what was happening was that companies wanted to do it, but two things were getting held up here. One, they kind of just wanted to buy the script from DeJarnett, and they didn't really want him to direct. But the bigger hang-up seemed to be this bleak ending. They wanted a happy Hollywood ending. And he stood his ground as far as the ending of this movie goes. And it's very interesting, because this movie, as uh, somebody quoted saying that this movie has the biggest lurch in tone that they had seen in quite a while one of the critics um both these movies received similarly pretty good reviews uh miracle mile more so than night of the comet i um but then again night of the comet is a lot more fun miracle mile starts out a lot of fun and dejarnet has introduced it at screenings as a john hughes comedy which a romantic a John Hughes romantic comedy, which it kind of it's, it's kind of starts out that way. We kind of have like a very sweet eighties meet cute at a museum, mm-hmm. and we get this traveling jazz trombonist that falls in love with this waitress. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking of I kept thinking of Bill Pullman and Lost Highway. That I would I would I would rather see Bill Pullman as a white man jazz musician, I think, than Anthony Edwards. <laughs> but anyway, well, <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking of that. No, well, here's the thing. The saxophone is a lot sexier it than the trombone. Is. It certainly is. You're doing some you're right. questionable yeah. hand gestures there when you're doing air trombone, <laughs> whether or not you're doing air saxophone a la Bill Pullman and Lost Highway. But yeah, the, yeah. the trombone's not the sexiest of, in, of instruments. But, I mean, this movie takes, yeah, this movie does a hard 180 because we get a very nice meet-cute. They spend the day together. 
she takes her grandfather to see him. Um, he actually meets both of her grandparents mm-hmm. at, at, at some point, mm-hmm. and then they they um, she's got to go to her shift at the diner now. She's a she's a hardworking waitress, so it's she's got the night shift, and um, they make plans to make to meet up at what one o'clock in the morning. I think midnight. Midnight. midnight? I think you're right. It was like midnight. So they make plans. Okay, you wrap up at midnight. We'll meet around 1230 and we'll do something fun together. Um, and then kind of like in a, in a stroke of genius, they actually show why the, why the hotel loses all its power and blacks out. It's like birds making a nest on the wires. It's it's no, not that genius. It's kind of like No, what? he's outside on the balcony smoking a cigarette. Oh. Takes a look at some kids. And kind of smiles, and kind of, it's almost like he's reflecting on, I just met a woman, I'm going to, like, maybe we'll have kids someday, so I'm going to quit smoking. And he flicks his cigarette away. And, and that's that what lands, starts the fire yes. in the bird's nest on the wires. I didn't get that. Yes. All right. So it is It is clever. All I right. I mean, we actually do got to, he so actually... Yeah, he kind of brought this upon himself in a way. Yeah, I get, that makes it that makes it more clever, definitely. But it short circuits the hotel. The electricity goes out, and he sleeps right through his date. Yes, right. And then the electricity comes back on. He doesn't know he slept right through the date, and he goes to the diner, and it's too late. And it's like three o'clock in the morning at that point. Yeah, three thirty. Yeah, because yeah, he's talking like, "Well, Harry, you, you really messed up. You yeah. spent the girl of your dreams, and now you're three hours late for your date. Not good. Not good." And the phone rings in the phone booth outside right and he answers it and that's when we get the big 180 yes i mean like up until this point this could have easily been a romantic comedy mm-hmm. and it was and working well on that level absolutely too. The, mm-hmm. the um they're both they both have a lot of Anthony chemistry had, they both dated in real life by the way when oh, they were making this movie so I the mean, chemistry that, that kind is, of is lends there. itself yeah uh, i'm gonna mispronounce her name so what mayor mayor winningham thank you who's and, a wonderful actress she i think i'm pretty sure she's in saying almost fire um okay and she uh, she's in Georgia with Jennifer Jason Lee. We were talking about her before we started recording, uh, about two sisters pursuing uh, a music career, and one of them actually has talent, the other one doesn't. Mayor Winningham is the one who does have talent. She has a beautiful voice that she uh, you, puts on display for this movie. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then we've got, uh, I think, I, I, this is like the only leading role for Anthony Edwards in a movie that I can think of off the top of my head. Well, I mean, Mr. North came later, a very annoying movie. Uh, that's an all-star cast, but he is considered the star of that movie. Okay. Yeah. Because then I, he did that stint in Northern Exposure where he was uh, too sensitive to the environment, so the he, lives, man. he lives in a bubble. Right. Yeah, I'd, I, I'd had it with him by that point. And then, like, he, <laughs> he, he like, came... Hugely well known and prominent for ER. Yeah, I mean he was the lead doctor on for most of that series. I stopped watching around season two, so I don't know much okay. about ER. But that's kind of like where my Anthony Edwards radar was. Mm-hmm. Was kind of just like ER and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, oh, which right. was like seventy nine yeah. or eighty. So yeah. and then like somewhere in between here, I mean he was. It's his first shot at real leading man role. Right. It's maybe his only. Mr. North doesn't even really count. Right. So this, but I mean, he carries this movie and you kind of have to ignore the box office flop that it is because it's actually a very well made movie. It is. It Um, packs a wallop and it keeps building and building. It doesn't leave you. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't bottom out. No. Once, once, I mean, what happens is I think that this movie 
I mean, it starts out as a romantic comedy. Then we get this very tense phone call where this guy is in a uh, a missile bunker in North or South Dakota. And he thinks he's calling his father. Right. He's trying to reach his father because he's wa- trying to, to warn his father that um, we're about to have nuclear war here. Um, they're going to shoot off. This is their words, not mine. They're full load. So, right. <laughs> you know, right. That's not a sexual innuendo, folks. That is an actual, you know, atomic it's, bomb. It's, it's, a, it's a, well, it is a sexual innuendo. I suppose, well, not in terms <laughs> of this movie. Yeah, I mean, why else would you say that? I mean, he's still saying, like, you know. Who says that to their father? Well, I mean, he's panicking. Okay, let's. I uh, mean, why would you say that? You're going to shoot your full load. I mean, that's, that's. Definitely a sexual innuendo. I wonder if that's like one of those weird military kind of things. Because he he has he picks up on a couple phrases here that he talks to some lady later on. But basically, this guy is um, trying to warn his father that um, their battalion, their, the mi- missiles are already coming in. Like they've got fifty minutes before the missiles hit and fifty five zero. Yeah, yeah, and then they're they're going to retaliate. So. He goes back into this diner, and then well, 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 well. Oh no, 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 yeah. No, 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 after, no, no. after, after he says all of this, you hear machine gun fire, and then you hear another voice coming on and saying to him, "Forget everything that you heard. Go back to sleep." That's right. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Because it's the middle of the night, but of course there are much more. Uh, bigger overtones to that statement. Sure. I think that that was, yeah. That No, yeah. that line was definitely yeah. crafted with yeah. more than just like, yes. oh, it's four in the morning. Right. You should be sleeping. Right. This is a this big is brother a... telling you. Mm-hmm. because the guy, out. Yeah, because, well, first the guy on the phone says, yeah, this is all a joke. And then you hear him, he's saying, they could see me in the monitors. They could see me in the monitors. Mm. Oh, no. And then you hear some, yeah, the, you hear machine gun fire and then somebody else picks up Picks up the line, and Anthony Edwards is is just like, oh, he keeps that. This has got to be a joke, right? It's got to be a felony for you to be joking about this on the phone. And the guy says, "Yes, it's just, it's nothing. Don't concern yourself." It's that's one of the agents that picks yeah. up after it says that. Yeah, go back to so, sleep. Yeah, and so now Anthony Edwards is out to inform everybody what's going on, and for the right. most part, they believe him, which I've had to just go with. Well, you know? I think well, I, well, they don't. They don't they're, just take like he doesn't walk into the coffee like the diner and say this. This is what happened, and everyone's on board. What happens? He's backed up by that woman who is in the know, right? On, on her big ass '80s cell phone. On her, yeah. Um, she's got her big ass. Uh, Denise Cronenberg. No, Denise something Crosby. Denise Crosby. Okay, I knew it would come to me. I knew it wasn't Cronenberg. There is a Denise Cronenberg. That's David Cronenberg's sister. And I think he she works as a, a costume designer, which is just random and has nothing to do with Miracle Mile. So back to Miracle Mile. <laughs> we have Denise Crosby, who's playing some... She, she said that she used to date some politician or something. But then she starts making some phone calls. He says some things. like she, he, he uses a technical word that immediately her ears perk up. And yep. she's like, repeat that? Yep. And then she starts making phone calls, and then people start believing. Yeah. Because it's not the like... The cook comes out, and, right. he, and she's like, remember, they have an exchange, and he's like, wow, so this is really happening. She validates it, basically. Yes. She validates it. We don't it. get... Yeah, it's not just people are, like, immediately on board going, 
Well, really? Well, but there is a there is a degree of that. There you is, know, that you but have I to mean, kind of just go with. I mean, yeah, but we do get some validity from from her, mm-hmm. and, and she starts putting together a helicopter uh, ride to go to the airport to go to Antarctica or the North Pole. I think it's the North Pole, but it might be Antarctica. Right, one of the poles. because she's telling someone so that. Um, so we get, I mean, and then the owner, the the cook at this diner, is kind of been like a doomsday prepper. It's <laughs> like he's all set. He's oh, got yeah. a shopping cart full of canned goods, and he he basically says, "Everybody, get in the truck. We're gonna go." And um, that's when this movie puts its foot on the the gas pedal and never stops. Mm-hmm. This is just nonstop, mm-hmm. and this also kind of plays out in real time, mm-hmm. supposedly. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're in it for the ride. Like it, it's the clock is ticking, right? And so, he, Anthony Edward joins them because somebody steals his car. One of the guys, one of the homeless guys that's been preaching out there is like not Spoonie. Like no one's gonna blow up Spoonie, and like he ends up stealing a car. I think. Okay. And then so. They're in a truck, and then he notices. He asks, "We gotta go back for uh, Mara Winningham's character. We gotta go back for her." And the, the, he's the, like, "No way." The cook initially says, "Yeah, fine," and he jumps in the car. But then he notices that they're headed in the wrong direction. So he, um, this is where he obtains a gun and he puts the gun to the 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 diner owner's head and basically says, well, we're going to stop. And the guy's like, no way. He's like, you're going to jump out? You're going to jump out here. And um, And he does. He does. He jumps out and then he runs. I mean, then he just starts to run into some of these side characters that are just littered throughout this movie. Mm -hmm. Because after this scene, we never see this this troop of people ever again. Mm -hmm. They're mentioned, well, specifically Denise Crosby's character is mentioned. Um... but we'll get to that. Um, but we never see them again. We're left with Anthony Edwards on the highway here. And he runs into an actor who I only know from Forrest Gump, Bubba. Okay. Who's got a sweet 80s uh, Adidas tracksuit on. Yes, he does. <laughs> he does. And this is kind of where we get the chicken little kind of thing going. Because then the story starts to change. He told the truth to this group at the, the at the diner. But what he tells Bubba, I'm just going to call him Bubba for the sake of simplicity. What he tells Bubba is that it's a nuclear, it's a meltdown at one of those uh, in a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He starts changing the story a little bit for different people. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. we get this like chaos. This is when the chaos starts because they go to a gas station. There's all this miscommunication between the cops and the owner of the gas station. And they end up accidentally killing two cops well presumably dead well they catch on fire right i think they're dead well <laughs> yeah i'm saying presumably okay i mean maybe they're in the burn unit or not okay <laughs> <laughs> but basically then we get just non-stop kind of like set piece after set piece where he's he goes and and finds um I need to find this character's name. I can't keep calling her Mara Winningham. Let me make a note here. Mayor, just say Mayor. Mayor. Yeah. He's got to go back and get Mayor. And um, he convinces her grandparents 
to, um, at first they agree to come with them. And it should be noted, uh, one of the sweeter things in this movie is that, well, the grandparents are estranged. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get that through the course of the conversation um, early from earlier in the day. But um, she says that they, they, they had said that they were never going to talk to each other until the day that they died. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of telling, because then we get this kind of sweet scene where the two of them pull up in a car, and they're going to go... Eat. They reunite... And they tell they tell the kids, quote unquote, the adult kids, that um, that they want to spend the last you know few minutes on Earth together. They're gonna go get what? They're gonna go to a. He's diner. gonna get something. Yeah, he says yeah. something about a heart attack kind of meal, pastrami meal or yeah. something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very sweet. It, and it, it's interesting because I mean, Miracle Mile is is is. It's a love story that's kind of happening at the end of the world. Mm-hmm. It we, is. We we go. I mean, we'll get. We're gonna get to the ending, but we go from the beginning to the very end of this relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many movies can say that they cover everything? Mm-hmm. This movie has the very beginning, their first meet cute at the museum, and then um, they eventually. I mean, through. I mean, it's just a series of mishaps, one after the other. Um, they finally get to the building where the helicopter is ready to take them a- away to safety to hopefully survive. But it turns out there's no pilot. So then he's got to go find a pilot. He tells her to wait. He still hasn't told her the truth. But she kind of picks up the pieces by talking to all the other people loading up the helicopter and getting it ready. Mm-hmm. Um, he finally finds a pilot. Um, and, and this like all night gym, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, and they're all working. Yeah, that's right. They're all working out. Yeah, he finds a pilot in an all night gym, um, and recruits him. All oh, right, Re- yep. recruits him, tells him where to go. But then he hears her. He hears Mar, his girl, screaming for a helicopter pilot, because she's mm-hmm. she's taking it upon herself. So then they end up reuniting, um, and they're about to head back to the helicopter pad, but then they're intercepted by Bubba and his sister, who have gotten to some sort of shootout with the police, and then we get a department store scene where he finally tells her the truth about what's going on, and then we kind of get this very nice kind of moment. I mean, you said the clock is ticking. We actually get a moment where the two of them are just talking um, and they're surrounded by clocks. It's all oh, clocks. Yeah, yeah. And we hear the police like they're having this conversation about reconciling and about him telling the truth. And um, we hear the police in the background telling them to come out. And then when they finally do come out, we see the police are just leaving. And we kind of we kind of get word that um, his little story has spread. Well, and also people are seeing it on the news. He, they, there are a bunch of people watching uh, televisions in a department store window, and I think he shoots the window or bashes the window in so they can actually hear what's being said right, on the TV, yes. and it's being announced. It's being announced on the television. Because previously in the night, probably about a half an hour earlier, he had, he was, they had stolen the police car, him and Bubba, and he gets on the radio and actually asks them about an evacuation plan. Um, okay, that's right. So and they don't know what he's talking about, right? No, right. they supposedly time, doesn't know what he's talking at that about. Stage in the game, yep. but then quickly we kind of get 
I mean, it's it's interesting. Both of these movies have very beautiful shots of empty, empty streets, sometimes at night, sometimes during the day. Yep. Um, yep, that whole 80s urban nighttime uh, feel is very much present in Miracle Mile. Right. Uh, it is in Night of the Comet, too, but not so much a lot of that is during the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, With this kind of hazy red sun beaming down. Well, the red to... the red is the, the, the comet's leftovers and the people and the people basically who have turned to dust are kind of floating through the air so um yeah we we get kind of it's interesting because we kind of get the flip side of um of night of the comet where everyone is happy celebrating this comet coming and the opening scenes are people having comet watching parties Mm -hmm. and everyone's celebrating like it's new year's like they're waiting for the ball to drop at this point, we we turn to the, the 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 final third of Miracle Mile. We have everyone and their mother trying to get out of Los Angeles. We've got roads filled with cars crashing into one another. We got people running around. We got people looting. And it's chaos. Yeah, there's a big tracking shot that must have you know cost a lot of that budget where it pulls back on Anthony Edwards and we see cars piled up and people panicking and running around. It's a, it's a, it's a good scene. It's a good moment that's well staged. Yeah. And I think with Miracle Mile, uh, I know with Night of the Living Comet, they weren't able to block off streets a lot. So they had to film like early hours or when people weren't around in L.A. like a Sunday morning. Right. Um, with Miracle Mile, I, they probably did close off streets for yes, what they did. They did. E- yeah, even though I heard that they had to go back and film some more stuff after afterwards. Um, yeah, they had to yeah, do some they, reshoots. Yeah, and they didn't have hardly any budget to do that. So they no. had to be, you know, they had to really find their way through that. So, yeah, the, yeah. It, I mean, we've got total chaos here. And yep. then we get... We the lovers get back to um, the building where the helicopter pad is, and the they they're going up in the elevator, and the elevator stops, and they think that this is it, and they kind of like we we get some very sweet and tender moments between them. I I don't find it uh, surprising at all that they actually had a, an off screen relationship because their chemistry here. it's palpable. Mm -hmm. It it really is. It feels very genuine. It it feels like two people that have kind of like had this love at first sight kind of moment. And they've decided to spend it together, spend the end of the world together. Right. And they're stuck in this elevator and we think that this is going to be it. And then they get to the, the, the roof and the helicopter is gone. And the only person left is this crazy drunk guy that's rambling about how this, uh, well, he uses a very, uh, he uses the hard C word to call, <laughs> in, in reference to her, um, Denise Crosby's character that we uh, I had mentioned. Um, so, I mean, and this is the very climax of the movie, and this is kind of where we get the down, I mean, it's a very downer ending, because you kind of think that it's over in the elevator, okay, they're going to spend the last moments of their life. The missiles are going to come. They're stuck in an elevator. Then they get to the helicopter pad. Okay, there's no helicopter there, so they're going to spend the last moments together on the, on the rooftop. Then the helicopter comes back. I'm not sure what happened to the pilot, but he's bleeding all over the place. And there's nobody else in this helicopter. Mm. So they get into the helicopter. The, the missiles come. They crash. And they're sinking. 
they're sinking in a helicopter mm-hmm. before the final missile comes. And at first they kind of accept it. Then she panics and she wants to try to get out. And he's like, there's nothing out there. There's nothing to go back to. But if we stay here together, we could become, maybe they're going to dig us up in a thousand years and we'll become um, exhibits in a museum or something. Or At a cellular level, our souls are always going to be together. Um, and yeah, this is a downer because then... And then it ends. And then we fade to black, the credits start rolling. Yeah, I mean, I was very surprised by that ending. I was like, what? Like, you're just ending it right there? I mean, it is kind of a like... It's a gut even, punch even, ending. Even, even more than a downer, it's just kind of a shock. It's kind of like, uh, I guess there's <laughs> there's no way to end it any other way. No. You're just going to die. Yeah. And there is there is something very romantic about it when you meet someone in those, and that feeling is there from the beginning. Um, for people who are in love with Love at First Sight, like this is a movie for them because these two people have just met and they are falling, you know, they're falling in, in goo with each other, if yes. not total love with each other. But so the end of the world comes and they are allowed to um, fulfill that, go with that and spend it together up until the end. So they they never get past that initial love at first sight or goo at first sight. You know? No. They're they're in that, and they capitalize on that. You have to. They're forced to capitalize on that. And then we kind of get love, love at convenience with Night of the Comet. It's kind of like, well, Hector seems to be the only guy alive. Yeah, but he's hot, so it's like, it's Is okay. He? I think so. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, so that's, that's kind of, that's more of the two sisters... Uh, fighting over that one guy, even though the younger sister, the older sister has already made claims on him. Right. But they do have a funny moment where they're fighting about him and they both crack up laughing because they just realize how absurd the, the whole thing is. Right. You know? I, and they're is, fighting over the last guy in I the mean, world. And again, I mean, you wouldn't get away with that today, but the younger sister says, but what if he's a fag? Yeah. <laughs> There's gay stuff in both movies. Like there's oh right, right there like is. In, in Miracle Mile, like the 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 pilot who's the workout dude ends up being gay because and I didn't even catch this, but he's like I gotta bring someone and it's another guy. I thought it was I thought it was I thought it was a chick. Um, it kind of yeah a little bit. So, but I mean it's 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 a dude. And I also found out in the trivia that when he, later when Anthony Edwards is trying to find that guy, the pilot, the same guy, he mistakens another guy for that guy. Do you remember that? Yes. That's a gay porn star. That is actually a well-known gay porn star. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't I don't know who he is, but yeah. So so it makes its way into uh, Miracle Mile, and just you know, as an offshoot with during with that conversation at Night of the Living Comet. Yeah, uh, Night of the Living Comet. I keep saying that. That's fine. <laughs> At this point, I've just come to accept it. At first, I was going to correct you, and I was like, Nah, we're just going to roll with it. We'll just roll with Night of the Living Comet. It's very interesting to me. So I don't know if this, you came across this in your um, your research, but up for Anthony Edwards's role were both Nicolas Cage and Kurt Russell. Oh, right. I did see that. Now, mm-hmm. And I saw that Crispin Glover auditioned for the voice of Chip. Who was Chip? Do you know? No. Okay. The voice of Chip? The voice of Chip. And so I don't know 
who Chip is, you might want to edit Listeners, this part please, out. Listeners, <laughs> if you know who the voice of Chip is in reference to Miracle Mile, please hit me up on Twitter, at ColtFilmCom. <laughs> that and... might have been the one guy on the phone who announces it. Oh, okay. I could see Crispin Glover doing cray-cray like that and yeah. doing it better, actually, than the actor who did it on the phone. Right. They should better... have cast Crispin Glover in that role. <laughs> better yet, <laughs> listeners, find Steve Jarnett on Twitter and, and hashtag cast Crispin Glover. I mean, go back and redo this. But, I I mean, Kurt Russell apparently was too busy. I mean, Kurt Russell had a, a hell of a track record in the 80s. Um cranking out like movies left and right mm-hmm. and Nick, um, Nick Cage was a hot item after Valley Girl right and apparently Nick this is only the kind of thing that Nicolas Cage would want to do is he kind of wanted to do Valley Girl Part 2 in Miracle Mile which really wouldn't have worked for the character he wanted to do that? yes what, so where does he get off making okay well alright I mean uh, I mean he is a Coppola he is a Coppola, <laughs> and I did tell you about the the movie where he randomly starts talking like Humphrey Bogart at the end. No, or, stop. No, I mean, no, this no, is, no, I mean, let's not talk about Nick Cage. Okay. okay, I know you like him, but I just I can't. I can't. The man's a true thespian. <laughs> the man is not a true thespian. Well, he's he's. I mean, maybe in technically. Stop it. So, uh, yeah, but no, that totally wouldn't have worked. Um, I can't. I. I could. Anthony Edwards kind of seems to be hot and cold on this movie because at one like he kind of sings its praises, but he also says it's very dated. I mean, they didn't really have the the money. He for says this. the special effects are dated, but I mean, I don't care. Like, I love the special effects in both movies. I right? really do. I love the fact that they're hopelessly trapped in the eighties. <laughs> those special effects. I mean, it's, you know, I. But I like watching old Doctor Who. I like watching that kind of special effects. So. It doesn't bother me. No, it doesn't it bother d- me either. Yeah, I, I, I kind of love it. it. I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm always, if if it's practical effects or CGI, give me practical effects. Yeah, I don't care if yeah. you can tell they're. I'm so, aren't you so CGI'd out? Oh, Every, oh. everything. Oh. Pretty, yeah, enough of CGI. Yeah, death to CGI. That's why. That's why we keep going back to these pre-CGI flicks for our uh, science fiction yeah, entertainment. I don't. I mean, have, I was a more of a. I was a, t- a child of the '80s, but I. I mean, I was a teenager of the '90s. But I mean, to me, like the '80s, I kind of always. I I go back to lots of neon, lots yeah. and lots of neon. Yeah. and but I still maintain, although I'm I'm sure it's not technically true but i do maintain that that neon started after 1983 that's my recollection and that's my you know it might have it was definitely prevalent in night of the comet which came out in 84 mm-hmm. so they so must have filmed it in 83 but still i was actually because i'm that kind of film nerd i i watched all the credits and there's actually just someone credited for neon <laughs> that's in this right. movie that's right so i mean but on the flip side we got kind of like the John Hughes-esque kind of thing going on with Miracle Mile where there's there's no neon in Miracle Mile that I can think of. Um, the clothes. There's some there's some neon in the, the gym. There, there is. is. Yeah. There is. So I take that back. Uh-huh. But I mean... I mean, you're in full-on 80s there, like aerobic workout, <laughs> video, <laughs> leotards. Yeah, yeah, all of that um, hot pink with the hair bands. It's like, you know, Olivia Newton-John physical... All of that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, but I, I mean, like, Night of the Comet is like 
drenched in neon, though, like I would say. Uh, it is, especially that radio station. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, all neon, you know? I, By the way, I love the poster for Miracle Mile that has the palm trees and the one in the foreground is on fire. And yes. the fire flames look like leaves, you know, the palm leaves on a palm tree, the branches. It's really good. And it's very uh, 80s art deco looking with the with the mushroom cloud way off in the background. Yes. Great poster. Which will be included with this episode. I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about because I went to check because the distribution for these movies is odd. Um they somehow both ended up at MGM, although neither one of them were initially produced by MGM. Mm-hmm. And they just, one of those acquired titles, if they buy out a company, they get whatever existing IP is there. So, I mean, wasn't it soon after that MGM got absorbed by, I don't know what, Touchstone I've, or something? I've, I've lost track yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, so they, I guess this was one of their last, you know, forays into releasing movies. I don't know. So, um, there's a beautiful Shout Factory combo uh, for Night of the Comet. And then... It has I, two posters on it. Yes. It's got um, the original poster, which is kind of just like a dark, ominous Twilight Zone kind of feel to it, which is very interesting. With a door opening and a shadow uh, silhouette going through it, if I'm correct. Am I right? Yes, you are yep, correct. Yep. Um, it looks, looks kind of like uh, Close Encounters or something. Right, and uh, Tom Ebenhart talked about how he was influenced a lot about these empty city movies that he called them. Mm-hmm. Um, Love it, and and how the first episode of the Twilight Zone was an empty city episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm trying to narrow it down. There's a lot of empty city episodes of, of the Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. Yes, there are. Uh, it's funny because when I had my idea for my movie. Uh, It was when lockdown started and well, no, it was before that. But when lockdown started, all of a sudden I thought, oh, wow, I can start doing this. I can start, you know, filming empty streets and empty neighborhoods because no one's out, you know. And I remember there was even a billboard for Wheel of Fortune because it had come back on the air with Pat Sajak. And uh, I I thought this this was even better. You know, I I got out my my camcorder because I wanted to shoot it on video. Uh, and did some stock footage of that. You know? Sweet. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, just for the record, you read what I, what little I've written yes. for it, and you liked it, right? I loved it. I was actually, I was going to surprise you. I was hoping at the end of this episode we could talk a little bit about Andrew's written project. We so can. We, we will. Um, where was I going with this? What was I saying? Tom Eberhardt uh... was talking about empty cities. Yes. So he was inspired by that, and then Valley Girl kind of took off, and he, he, I mean, he, he talks about how influential Valley Girl was to getting this movie made. He, yeah. if, if Valley Girl didn't happen, um, the song and the movie, I mean, they were both popular at the time. Um, and then, I mean, the producers of Valley Girl were kind of straddled with this project. Yeah. And um, so they wouldn't have happened. Um, and but it's fun. It's fun seeing two Valley Girls uh Show their good, their stuff, you know, right. that, they're, that they're tough but, behind uh, it all. Apparently some feminist groups had a problem with this uh, reissue um, artwork. I have issues with it, not necessarily because of why the feminists do, more so the fact that 
zombie cop who's kind of let me see who's kind of right there on the cover only appears in a dream sequence it's kind of misleading to put zombie cop there those were real cops too or or just they weren't actors no yeah no. Yeah. Um, yeah i don't i don't like this no i prefer the original one me too um so if as you, always if you get it from shout factory you could just you can flip it right around <laughs> and um enjoy now i and the tagline and the original poster is it was the last thing on earth they ever expected now i always like to get a physical copy of the movies that we cover here um so, so i could do research what I ended up with Miracle Mile is there's actually a much nicer release of Miracle Mile out there featuring the cover that you were just describing, the Art Deco oh, yeah. palm tree. Um, for some reason, this was the first thing that came up on Amazon, and this thing's just shoddily thrown together. I mean, it's, it's a bad bare picture bones. On the front. Oh, it's a terrible Yeah, it's terrible the two picture. of them holding each other as it all goes down. But, and you, yeah, you think that it could be anything. Actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I mean, so if you're going to get a copy of Miracle Mile, go for one of the nicer editions. The only positive I can say about this is that there's no bonus features for Miracle Mile. There's not even a menu screen. You could choose between Miracle Mile and your only bonus feature, which is oddly enough the John Hurt version of 1984. Mm-hmm. So. And which both of them, I mean, uh, I'm guessing that they were, yeah, MGM acquired Orion because both of these movies were done by Orion. Miracle Mile and 1984 were done by Orion. And then MGM released them. And MGM obtained them. What, who, Night of the Comet was done by, oh no, no. No, he had a meeting, he had a meeting at Orion. Orion was big stuff in the 80s. Mm-hmm. I, I remember you see that logo, Orion mm-hmm. logo. It's just like you, you, you just kind of reminisce. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, we got kind of like two sh- two shades of the 80s here um, in Miracle Mile and in Night of the Comet. Now, Night of the Comet was released when? 84. As well as, and oh, it was Miracle Mile that was 88. Yes. Yeah, Miracle Mile was 88. So there is a four-year difference between the two of them. Yes. Um, yeah, Miracle Mile was finally released September eleventh, nineteen eighty eight, at the Toronto Festival of Festivals. Okay, that's from Wikipedia. I don't know if the Toronto Festival of Festivals is actually a thing. I have heard of the Toronto Film Festival. That might, well, who knows? I don't who know. knows? But so, uh, but then it came out in May nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine, to uh, wide release, and it was uh, critically acclaimed. Um, has a great soundtrack, well, score, has a great score by Tangerine Dream, who, who scored. It's, it's excellent. I listened to that soundtrack. It's it's really good. It is. Yeah. Tangerine and it builds. Even just the soundtrack itself, if you listen to it, there's a constant build to it. I mean, Tangerine Dream was just one of the, like, it's a, I guess they're a band technically, but I just know them from their film scores and, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of 80s music. They mm-hmm. do a lot of like synthy kind of music. Mm-hmm. I, I particularly like their score for To Live and To Die in L.A., mm-hmm. which is a great movie. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, speaking of the Twilight Zone, going back, I mean... I mean, Miracle Mile was a story that was going to be used for tw- the, the movie. Right, Twilight Zone. yes. Um, and before Spielberg came on and did Kick the Can instead. Right. Okay. So, I mean, 
Did but that's, that's interesting because, I mean, in the Twilight Zone movie, aren't those all old episodes of the Twilight Zone that are redone? Aren't they all? I th- Except for the opening sequence? They might. I know for sure two of them are. So to Kick the Can is, and then Terror at like 12,000 feet. And what what were the other stories? There's the other one, that terrible one, where the the actor, all those actors died in that helicopter. Right, 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 right. What was that? I don't know if that was an original Twilight Zone movie. Do you know what the story was called? Do you remember what it was? No, I just know the director, John Landis. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it was John Landis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but I mean, you know... Okay, but I mean, Miracle Mile is not an old Twilight Zone episode, no. so it's interest. It's weird that they that would be considered. Right, I, I I think yeah, I think you're right. Other than like the um the opening scene of the two guys driving in the mm-hmm. car, one of them is Dan Aykroyd, and the other is Albert Brooks, I believe. Right, yeah. yes, it is. Mm-hmm. That um, scared the shit out of me when I saw yeah, it in you the theaters. See something scary, yeah. yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> I screamed in the theater. Right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but we're not. Yeah, so the Twilight Zone influence, like it, it's it's always there. Yeah. I mean, it's always gonna be there because it's such like ingrained in our zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they keep bringing it back. Mm-hmm. Like every decade, like mm-hmm. needs to have their own Twilight Zone, mm-hmm. which is fine by me. I'll stick with the original. Thank you very much. But mm-hmm. that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea where we were going with this. Um, well. Do you want to segue into the last of my notes? Please, please, please. So so the, that Pan Pacific auditorium that we see in Miracle Mile during one of their dates with the... Do you know what I'm talking about? I pointed it out to you. Uh, I said that's, 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 yes. the, that's what... That's where Xanadu takes place. It's a huge set piece for Xanadu, actually. Okay. They end up having a disco roller rink uh, inside that building. Uh, and what's what struck me of intri- of interest is that that structure burned down before Miracle Mile was released. Really? Yeah, and that's a very um, iconic, I hate that word, but I, a very iconic building for Los Angeles and for movies, not wow. just Xanadu, but I, m- maybe a few others. But yeah, it's kind of telling that it, it burnt to the ground right before Miracle Mile was released. That's scary. Yeah, I know, I know. Um... And I mean, it's it's a shame. I mean, I, it's great that Night of the Comet greatly exceeded expectations budget-wise. It's a shame that Miracle Mile didn't. But I think it's because it's an 80s movie, but it was written in the 70s, and it's got a very 70s nihilistic ending. It does. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of... Th- but I'm kind of glad that DeJarnett stuck to his guns and kind of said... This it, is the ending that yeah. I wrote. This is the ending that we're going to do. I mean, it's pretty unapologetic about how it ends. Right. It just and, it, and once again, it just ends. It just ends. You know, yeah. you don't even see them die. No. And yeah. I, I kind of like the, the, that. I don't want... I don't... You kind of get attached to these characters. You don't want to see them die. No. But on the other hand, I don't really want to see a happy Hollywood ending where they somehow... Like managed to survive. There's so many movies like that. Up in the helicopter, watching the mushroom cloud, and right. the copter shakes around and then get, regains its, you know, its its footing yeah, in mean, the air. God forbid <laughs> that someone like Roland Emmerich or Michael Bay got oh, their Lord, hands those, on this. I hate those. What was that? Twenty. What's the one that Emmerich? Twenty. Uh, Twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Right, and there's that. 
it's chock full of moments like that where they're right. they're driving away from an explosion and you know or they're driving on the highway and the highway's collapsing right behind they, them right they, they, they still, still get away run. yeah they're right right I I kind of like this ending yeah I mean it it kind of su- I mean it's real I mean it's very real I mean Miracle Mile is very real it is I mean. And I, I I had to suspend my disbelief and just go with it more than once. Sure. But, other, but yeah. otherwise, like it's you know, it's how it would all kind of unfold. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. There's got to be a suspension of disbelief. But again, I mean, some of the the scenarios that end up, I mean, they are pretty realistic to like what would happen. I guess. I mean, the whole premise from both movies, in my opinion, okay, are are. Ludicrous bullshit. Yeah. So I, was, well, I just yeah. want to I just want to say no. Now, this fine. is this is a good time to bring up Mary Warnov again, who plays Audrey the scientist in Night of the Comet. Okay. She was asked about Night of the Comet, and this is what she had to say. <laughs> listen, listen to okay. this. Okay. I'm excited. Dot 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 is not a cult movie at all. <laughs> this, this is from her words. Okay. It is a fad movie, quote unquote. What? F a b. F a d. Fad. Oh, it's a fad. fad. It's a fad movie. It will not date very quickly. It will date very quickly because it's about valley girls shopping at the mall and the bomb. It's not ahead of its time and it's not behind its time. It's just a combination of in elements, quote unquote. So, and I, and okay, I say this and I bring this up and I give it some credence because it's Mary Warnoff and she, she was one of the original Andy Warhol superstars. Oh. We're talking The Factory. Okay. She was there with Andy Warhol, Joe D'Alessandro, Jackie Curtis, Candy Darling, all Studio of them. Studio 54, all that. Well, no, that came later. Oh, That okay. came much later. But, I mean, the original, um, Edie, the factory. Edie uh, Sedgwick, all of them. The Factory, late 60s, early 70s. She was there. She was in it. She, al- she also did a movie that predates When a Stranger Calls with the similar premise about someone terrorizing people on a phone. Uh, it's during Christmas time. Uh, I think it's called Silent Night, Deadly Night, or Silent, Silent Night, Bloody Night. It's okay. Silent Night, Bloody Night may be it. Deadly Night is the different one. That's the axe murdering Santa Claus. Right. So, uh, and then she went on by 1988, actually, when Miracle Mile came out, 88 or 89, she did a movie called uh, Scenes from a Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, which has a cult following. It's a good, good flick. Uh, and she was. Does she it have won... a cult following? According to her, though, when is, that, <laughs> what, when is that quote from? That must have been like right when the movie came out. I right? don't know. Okay. To tell you the truth, I don't know because how the way she's it is. the way she's talking, it's as if the movie had just come out. Right. Yeah. She and so this is what was going through her head when she was filming it. Okay. Yeah, but in cla- scenes from a, cl- I just want to say, clean scenes from a class struggle in Beverly Hills. She won awards for her performance in that. Really? Yeah. So she she's she can be quite good. She's in reading Raoul. You brought that up. She's the female in Eating Raul. And we get, well, Raul... You brought that up is, a, a few days ago. Is, so um, what's the connection? Because I couldn't find a connection to the flicks. Oh, Raul, the, the titular Raul in Eating Raul is Robert Beltran. Who is this guy, Hector. Oh, uh, I think he's in scenes from a class struggle in Beverly Hills as really? well. Really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. You know they made, you know they made a musical, an off Broadway musical out of Eating Raoul with Adrian Zemed from from One Day at a Time. He was the the uh, the fix it guy in the apartment complex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was also in Grease too. I don't know if you remember. He's uh, he was like 
Lorna Luff's boyfriend. I've never seen Grease 2, <laughs> so... <laughs> I will not torture you with that because it's Thank not. You. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't even. Does call it have it a, a cult following? I mean, it does, but it's just an ironic cult following. Perhaps you know. It's also just so notorious that, as a flop, you know okay. that that um, it kind that kind of eclipses its cult. Uh, it almost know, seems like it belongs on this show. <laughs> well, that, well, I don't know if I could. That's a dippity doodah flick. If okay. I've ever seen one. Um, and I'm quoting a, 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 a former roommate of mine when she said that. I like that quote from her, but it definitely <laughs> seems like it was taken like during press for this movie. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that would be her. That would be her. Uh, pretty much standard cynical take on on it. Sure, I would buy that from her. She knows. She knows the deal. She's she lived through the real underground scene. Right. You know? So yeah. here she is making. You know. It's not a big Hollywood movie, but she's seeing Hollywood attempt to make something that's... Sure, uh, and as much as I love it, um, Night of the Comet is a little schlocky. Sure. I mean that, I but mean it, but that it's as a almost, compliment. Yeah, and it's, its intention is to go there. Oh, absolutely. There's a huge oh, tongue yes, in cheek. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, and this this did inform me when I was writing my my script. Right. Yeah, it's like, I, let's keep this, let's keep one tongue firmly in cheek no matter how gruesome or horrific things get. Yes. You have to bounce back to that. And right. they did that. And I think they were saying the actress who, um, the actress who plays Regina in Night of the Comet was saying that there were people involved behind the scenes that wanted to make it a full-out horror movie, Night of the Comet, but they were able to keep the comedic elements and the and the you know quirky Valley Girl, dumbass you know remarks in it, right? Which gives it a buoyancy, you know. Yeah, You're able to a... kind of like keep popping up from the darkness in, that no is way... in in Night of the Comet, right? Yeah, and I'm I, and I'm, I'm th- the original script actually had. Zom- it had zombie in it. The title. Yeah. Uh-huh. The original title did. Yeah. Um, which I don't know if it's true. Again, I'm going back to the audio I, commentary because he says the zombies were an afterthought. It is t- an afterthought. You can tell. Yeah. It's an afterthought when you think about the movie in retrospect. Right. So anyone that gets hung up on the, the zombies, I mean, they're great for what they are, but they're not. I mean, this is not a zombie movie. And, um, But, I mean, I, I so, like these two movies... But As, it's also interesting that Mary Warnoff calls it, you know, says that this Night of the Comet is about the bomb when it's actually about a comet. But it really is about that nuclear fear. And the nuclear, yeah, You know, that still is around today. And I, I'm not going to say too much about what I think about it. But, I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such a divisive uh, thing, you know, uh, the nuclear fear. I mean, it's like that Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove and the alternate title of that love. is... Is a or huge... how I stopped worrying and started learn to love the bomb. That's how it. I how I learned to stop worrying and learn to love the bomb. Something like that. Yes. Right. 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 And it's so strange I mean... love, not glove. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a Kubrick fan. I still haven't seen it either. Yeah, I should be able to get that right. Uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but I mean, really, like you know, yeah. nuclear war, nuclear war, nuclear. I mean, still today. You know, it was I like mean, nuclear weaponry, you know, weapons of mass destruction. We're all going to be obliterated at, at the push of a button. I mean... And it just, you know, that hangs over our collective heads. But who, who in their right mind thinks that nuclear war is a fad? I wish it was a fad, but I mean... No, 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 She doesn't say that about nuclear war. She says that about the movie. Oh, she says that right, it's not right, a cult right, movie. Right, it's right, more right. of a fad movie. Okay. You know, so, I mean, she, 
she could be right about that. It depends on how no, you look at it. No, and it is definitely, you know? I mean, I, under, like, di- different circumstances, you could definitely kind of replace the comet with a nuclear bomb going off and mm-hmm. just, like, some survivors in a bomb shelter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have the same mm-hmm. premise. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone and, turning to dust, the people getting radiated slowly de- de- degenerating into zombies right. or dying or whatever. And it just so happened that, you know, previously to doing this, I had, just guessed it on a podcast where we talked about a movie which I just showed you the trailer called The Bed Sitting Room, which is about post apocalyptic Britain. Yeah, that that's a hoot and a holler. Oh boy, that would be a good one to do. Yeah, so yeah. we might have to do that, but it's I like mean Monty I, Python takes tackles the end of the world. It's like Monty Python crossed with a Mad Max apocalyptic yeah. wasteland. Yeah, they're just like in that trailer they're just on junk through yeah, the whole movie. It was, it was all filmed, sitting but, yeah. on junk. So, I mean, and that movie came out in 1969. And, I mean, and, and then Dr. Strangelove came out in somewhere in the 70s, I want to say, or in the late 60s. But and I then, mean, and I then mean, I mentioned, uh, um, um, oh, oh, don't, don't escape me now. Uh, what's the one with Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner and Fred Astaire, who was up, I think, for an Oscar for it? Um... On the Beach, not On the Waterfront, On the Beach. Right. Which was a novel and then a Stanley Kramer movie. Uh, it's in black and white, but it's about post-apocalyptic n- nuclear war. Same type of thing. And that's from, you know, as I said, it's black and white. It's from right. the you know, early 60s. So, I, I mean, th- these themes are, are kind of, I mean, and I think that kind of, I mean, the films are great by uh, on their own, but I think that kind of what helps fuel some of the cult appeal is the fact that we're this is still an issue today i mean it's still a purported issue today let's not get into it too okay. much <laughs> so i mean I, let, we're gonna wrap up this episode by talking a little bit about your unfilmed well un, is it finished the screenplay I no that part of it that's all that for the most part, there is another scene that I didn't send you, which is a a, a little more pedestrian. But yeah, I wrote I wrote one scene uh, where uh, a girl, you know, after her her friend dies, goes out into the woods and sings a song called "Today the Earth Stood Still" that I wrote, um, where she confronts uh, basically uh, the heavens, you know, with with this dilemma of the apocalypse. But in addition to that, uh, I wrote an opening sequence that. I'm so glad you just you get it because so many people don't get it and uh, it works. The opening sequence is the the characters uh, our lead characters getting together and seeing. Um, yeah, go I ahead. I was just gonna say one something in particular that I like is that you've got not only are we we talking eighty six. Yeah. it's Christmas. It's Christmas time in eighty six, and the world is heating up. And no one's on the streets, you know, everyone's scared. And at then, home, and isolating. Sound familiar? So, and I, Chris is four years old. And what? <laughs> and Chris is four years old. And Chris is four years old. I'm sorry, Chris, it's all going to be over. Oh, no. You're never going to have a childhood or a teenagehood or an adulthood. Yeah, maybe it's better off. That's fine. But, but no, I just love these... Um, this this very interesting motif that you've you've woven here, and there's there's a song that you was takes place in a graveyard, right? Well, yeah, they the the two char- the two lead characters, one of the two of the lead characters, uh, get into their cars, their respective cars, to meet each other uh, on a hill where they're going to survey what's happening in the skies, right. the invasion, basically, and so they're singing this song. Uh, should we even? Read some of the lyrics on, online. Do you have it there? Yeah. 
I mean, this is, you know, by doing this, we are copywriting this, just so everybody knows. Do uh, you want the today the earth still, still... No, no, no. Go to the opening sequence, if you can. This Because the same, what they are singing ends up being the same song that uh, the rowdy group in the cemetery are singing. So when they go to the hill, it's actually a cemetery to go and look at the skies. This, this comes from the small town that I lived in as a teenager. Up on the hill of our town was a cemetery, a huge cemetery. So it would be, be the perfect place to go and see an alien invasion. Uh, so the two characters get into the car and they sing. Let's see. Let's see here. Oops, sorry, sorry. We got a feeling, everybody got a feeling that we're not alone, we're not on our own anymore. I got a feeling, everybody got a feeling that this is the end, don't try to pretend anymore. And then let's go down a little bit. Let's burn up this town. Let's get high and get down. And when we're all done, we will never be found. Break the law if we want. Lose our minds if we want. There's nothing to lose, so lose it all if you want. I love it. Thank you. Now, when they get to the cemetery, they, the female protagonist has been trying to contact her boyfriend to no avail. And... When, they get, when she and her friend get to the cemetery and they're looking at the skies, they see a rowdy group that's approaching them who are vandalizing the graves. And the, the group is singing, break the law if we want, lose our minds if we want, there's nothing to lose, so lose it all if, if you want. Same thing that they had sung earlier. And then they go on to sing, get our kicks how we want, double dip if we want, down and strip if you want, suck my mm if you want. Mm. And that's when uh, the female protagonist sees that it's her boyfriend in the gang. And uh, at that point, she starts to, he said, he's, what does he say to her? He says, kind of fuck her in the hey, grave. Yeah, hey, lover, <laughs> want to fuck in a grave? And she said, what did you just say to me? And the, and the group starts becoming orgiastic in this uh, way that spills blood, as well as, you know, seeking carnage uh, on every level of the flesh. And at that point, the female protagonist screams, and we cut to the next scene where two girls are good, are playing around uh, in a in the woods, and they're eventually going to see an alien face to face. So yeah, man, I was truly inspired when I when I did this. And right, it would, I, I see a lot of Night of the Comet. Yeah, here. right. The way it's balancing, um, you know, humor, humor with these these yeah these heavy topics. Yes, yes, yes. So yes. Um, yes. I, it wouldn't be. It could be done. It could be done on a on a small budget, especially if, uh, yeah, especially if the singing is live and the and the. I, I don't want to give away too much. So, yeah, anyway. we we got to keep some mm -hmm. some secrets here. We mm -hmm. gave you enough of a taste. Mm -hmm. If um you're you're listening to this and you're interested in producing Andrew's script, <laughs> contact him or contact me and I'll get a hold of him. Um, but uh, we're going to wrap up this, this 80s double feature, our 80s apocalyptic the Armageddon-esque. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Yeah. Um, Night of the Comet and Miracle Mile, both two great movies. Um, it's a good double feature. It is. Mm -hmm. because you, you, I mean, And I would recommend probably Miracle Mile first, yes, since it's leading up to it. I was going yeah. to say, great double feature, because, I mean, immediately from the down 
that you get from the ending of Miracle Mile. You can lighten things up. You can lighten things up. And Night you, of the Comet. You get a semi, I mean, given the circumstances, we kind of get the happiest of endings as we could with Night of the Comet. Sure. We get the nuclear family kind of back together. Yeah. Mom, dad, the two kids. Mm-hmm. She's teaching them good manners about not crossing against the light. Mm-hmm. And then we get RKM showing up. Is it, the, isn't it nu- nuclear family? Yeah. Did you say nuclear? Maybe. Nuclear, nuclear family post-nuclear fallout. Right. <laughs> Didn't George W. Bush mix the two up at one point? I think yeah, he did. Yeah, th- and Dan Quayle misspelled potato. But, I mean, and, and, and that's your politicians for you. But there's there's so much going on in both these movies that we could they could easily have been um, episodes on their own. But, I, I like Andrew said, this is a great double feature. Do mm-hmm. Miracle Mile, even, even though Night of the Comet came out first, I would say do Miracle Mile first. And then it, it it almost kind of like you could trim like the first couple minutes off of Night of the Comet and like almost pick up. Yeah, like you it, certainly uh, could. It almost, it, I mean, it, you almost don't need the comet anymore. You kind of just get like the ending of Miracle Mile. We might have to splice those together. And if we can get the rights cheap enough for MGM, that'll be the cult film we'll, release. We'll, yeah, we'll splice of... them. <laughs> It'll be Night of the Miracle Mile. <laughs> like, so, uh, but we thank you so much for listening. Again, we are on every major podcast platform, um, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all that good stuff. Interact with us. That was the word I was looking for. <laughs> Interact with us in the Facebook group on um, on Facebook, Cult Film Companion. Hit me up on Twitter at Cult Film Comp and uh, send us your movie recommendations. On Twitter, Instagram, Cold Film Companion, all that good stuff. And uh, check us out on Blind Knowledge and on Newsly. We thank you all for tuning in to this deep dive into the 80s, this somewhat neon-soaked era that we love so much. And yeah, keep it cult, everyone. Good night.